ride with me in my foul life. Podcast World, what's up? We're back at you. Another episode of the Foul Eye Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by friends and family. Final Flight Outfitters, the state of Tennessee. It's duck season. It's upon us right now. We're supposed to be in Canada right now. Blue Wing Till, some early season Canada goose, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota. Look at Final Flight Outfitters for all of your waterfowling needs, decoys, waders, apparel, shotguns, ammunition, ran by the great Powers family out of Martin, Tennessee. They are a one-of-a-kind family. Today's guest... We've had him here before, 1999 World Goose Calling Champion, 2000 World Goose Calling Champion of Champions. Kelly Powers, how the heck are you, my man? Good, buddy. How are you? I've been running, buddy. I've been uh, trying to escape these uh, California wildfires. I'm sure you've been seeing the, uh, on the news. Yeah. The, the air quality has been really bad, my man. So even if I wanted to blow my goose call, I don't think I could get much in my lungs. Uh, I, that's, you know, we don't, being in the Mid-South here, we don't, fortunately, we don't have, everything's so wet and bottom ground here, you know, and close to the Mississippi River. It's just, uh, granted, we have the humidity like crazy, but we don't have the super dry conditions like you guys have out West. Speaking of that part of where you're at, I was just listening to a podcast I just released. Have you heard of a country music musician from Kentucky named Chris Knight? I, uh, who, repeat it again, who? Chris Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T. Yes. If you haven't, please oh, listen to his story. Yes, yes, yes. He sings so many songs about river rats and down the river, and the river zone is now, one of his best songs. But oh. Kelly, he's got these songs called Rural Route. He's got a song called Nothing On Me. You got to go yep. listen to him when we get off here and listen to how much it hits home for you, especially being where you're from. You're going to be like, dang it, he's yeah. writing about my life. Where's the one, the, the, what's the name of the song down the river where his, his brother, they were running catfish lines and, and, uh, oh, I can think of the lyrics, but I can't think of the name of the song. It's called down the but, river uh, when they get, when they get in the fight, him and his cousin, Willie, and they get in the fight and they kill the guy and yes, put him in the boat. Yes. All right. So when I was growing up and even in college, a buddy of mine, like that, that's their, it was their favorite artist. And, uh, and he would play a lot of his covers and stuff like that. We'd be sitting around the bonfire there at my house that we had that we lived in when we went to college there and man there's a lot of good a lot of good memories with his music yeah i thought you would i thought you would hear you know who introduced me to him was walt gabbard back when i was running with really? zinc big time yeah because walt's a yeah. kentucky boy and he's a musician and he's like man you ever heard of chris knight and i'm no i said no and that was like 2005 maybe and he's like listen yep. to this song and he played this song called framed and he's got another big hit yep. called it ain't easy being me it ain't yep <laughs> it ain't that's right easy be those are the ones yeah. that those are the two that no, stick to he most is, people he is a legend man he is he is good like he is i, I didn't i didn't hear your the first thing when you said it the first time but no he is he's legit really good are you um is it weird to you to think that nobody from our country has been to canada since the last 30 days when it would usually be just be infiltrated with us <sighs> yeah man it's it's a bittersweet deal i mean it's a you know <sighs> My wife it loves it that I'm not going to Canada this for a change this year. You know, she is even talking in the summer. She said, "Well, maybe it would be a good year to take you know take a year off." Um, but it is. I mean, I, the the families up there that you get to know and friends and farmers. To me personally, I mean, it's kind of my home away from home. You know, and and love going up there in October and not being able to go. It's just weird. And then there's the big unknown of. You know, obviously, the big situation is this whole virus and getting all this stuff under control. And I don't think any of us knows what the right 
thing to do is, but, and it's okay. It's okay. We don't know, but you know, everybody's trying their best, no matter how you feel about it. Um, but not going to Canada, the big unknown of the waterfowling world is what is it going to do to our fall migrations? Because at the end of the day, I mean, a good number of hunters from the States are traveling North. So what is that going to do to our migrations this fall? Is it, is it going to shortstop? Is it going to help? Is it going to not educate a lot of ducks and geese? You know, and I think it's a little bit probably of, of everything. I mean, if we get some good cold fronts in, in the month during the full moon cycles in October, November, I think you're going to have a lot of those birds that are, that'll blow out. Um, it's interesting. My brother did a, um, a crop analysis report uh, that he gets a lot of the reports from Canada. And I, I know in Saskatchewan, of course, we're here we are at the 1st of October, and I believe they're over 80% already of harvest, which this time last year, I think it was around a 30% or less. So, you know, uh, they're way ahead, which is good for the farmers. Uh, but so it looks like they've had a pretty good uh, dry fall, at least, you know, so far in, in, in Saskatchewan, uh, which is good. So, you know, that, that, that helps for, for a number of things. Obviously, it, the shelf life of that excess grain that's in those fields, now those, those days are counting, you know. So uh, the birds are going to have, obviously, they're going to be good and, and hardy when they get here. But I do think, you know, since the farmers are getting a lot of the crops out early, uh, I think that bodes well for us having good migrations come November, December. So I want to make sure I understand you. Last year when I was up there in October, a good percentage of the crop was not picked up. The birds, right. it wasn't even cut. A lot of it was too wet to cut. So it seemed to me like that would make the birds fly over it faster and get down here faster if most of the crop and there's no food on the prairies, right? Yeah, it depends on the type of crop, you know, uh, of certain types of crop and, and even up there for insurance purposes, you know, they'll leave, uh, they call them not, not bait fields, I guess you should say, but uh, what, what's the word sacrifice or, or there's an insurance term uh, that some of the farmers, buddies of mine up there, we talk about to where a lot of the farmers will go in and they may have one field that they'll let set idle and they don't harvest and, and it, they, a lure crop is what they call it. So it's a lure field that they want all the waterfowl to congregate in this one field. So literally they'll take an insurance loss and an insurance claim on this field and they'll designate that field as a lure crop. Now, obviously you can hunt it and all that, but they don't, they want the ducks and geese to hit it just because while they're hitting that one field, they're able to go and harvest all the other fields that the waterfowl haven't found yet. So they have those lure fields a lot. So it really depends on the type of crop. Uh, you know, if it's wheat or barley and they've harvested it and it's in swaths already, if they've cut it and it's still laying in the field, um, you know, they want to get that off the ground pretty quick before any type of waterfowl find it. You know, if, uh, if snow geese find it, goodness, man, they can they can do some damage, you know, and, and it doesn't take long for, for several thousand snow geese to walk across a field that's already swathed up. And every time something walks through that swath, it's just jostling that grain around and it, that grain's hitting the ground and there's no way for the farmer to pick it up in the combine. I heard, I heard a number. I don't know if you've heard um, harvest last year. I don't know if it was just Saskatchewan, Kelly, or if it was all Canadian provinces, but I heard 600,000 ducks harvested. I don't know if it was Saskatchewan. That sounds like a lot for one province. It, it does, but, you know... I, I couldn't guess. I, I wouldn't be able to guess and put a number on it. Um, it it's it, goodness. I mean, it's just, it's tough because you know, I mean, it's Canada. And, and at the end of the day, you know, it's all Canada. People ask, well, where y'all going to this year? Where did, 
it's all the to me it's all the same now granted there's some places that are maybe a little better than others but then there's also more hunting pressure in that area and i just love it man find a place that you know that we have and and, and just kind of call home and you get to know the people and 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 you got good years and bad years but even in those areas you kind of can know what a good week is if you're up there and gosh i couldn't put a number on an overall harvest over a whole province I, would, I don't know. It'd be a tough, wouldn't surprise me though. Any number wouldn't surprise me. So what does that do to, obviously more Americans are going to flock to North Dakota if, if I had to assume, but what does it uh, yeah. do to the overall intelligence level of the species? If you take that factor of that pressure and those mojos out of the pea fields, most of the hunting up in the provinces of Canada is done in dry fields. Not much water hunting occurs at all up there. I'm sure you've done it just to challenge yourself like we have. But what do you think it does to the overall intelligence or hunt IQ of those birds as they get down to us now? You know, common tendency would tell you that you think, all right, they're not going to be as educated, especially on any type of spinning wing decoy. Uh, because predominantly without a spinning wing decoy in a dry field, ducks become ducks then. I mean, they become kind of normal. Uh, when you put any type of flash out in that field, they they become more vulnerable. Um, so you would think that, yeah, they would be not as educated in, in that realm. But then again, from a biologist take, and, and I'm by no means I'm a biologist, but from what studies I read, you know, mortality due, that is attributed to hunting is, is what is it like around 7% or, or 5%? Like it's crazy low, you know, if you look in the lifespan of, of waterfowl. So whether you're talking ducks or geese, uh, if, if you're attributing it to hunting, you know, it, it's such a small percentage that sometimes I wonder, do we overthink things like that? Um, I don't know. I mean, common, like I said, common tendency would think what does get here would be a little, little uh, uh, not as educated, uh, but then again, you know, how much is really attributed to that? I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And plus you're so far down the flyway. Now you still got the Dakotas and the uh, Mississippi yeah. flyway States and Missouri's and uh, different places to, to, you know, combat that theory of like, well, they're going to see it yeah. if they didn't see it in Canada. Does this time of year naturally make your mind go to Tim grounds at all. And the reason I asked you about Tim Kelly is that so many people have written me since you've become a a guest on the podcast for the few episodes you've been here, which I appreciate. Uh, They want more. Like I I guess I teased them in one of the episodes that next time Kelly and I are going to talk some Tim stories and stuff. Does it automatically go that way when you start thinking of waterfowl season? Oh, I, I mean, you know, today is the two year anniversary from when Tim passed and, and, uh, Interesting. I, I didn't even realize this, but two days ago, and, and Kyle Jones actually texted me. Um, um, we were talking about the weather, but two days ago, um, we had a cold front that come through. And and granted, I mean, it was it's been in the eighties, and this is of course really the first good kind of cold snap that's come through. You know, in the fall, and it, it it's just the start of the fall when you're used to summer and you get that little north wind and all that. But but it was funny because when that cold front come through, it, it rained a little that morning and that afternoon. Uh, the wind was blowing out of the north, northwest, and, and grounds always used to call them them big powder puff clouds. And I know you probably heard him. And it's those great big cumulus clouds that are on the post side of a front. And when that comes in, it's that high pressure system that's pushing that front in. And, and generally, you know, migratory, you know, they migrate or waterfowl migrate better um, in high pressure systems. And those big powder puff clouds, grounds always used to call them. Uh, but it was funny. I was walking outside. And I looked up and saw them, and naturally, every time I see them, and I feel that north wind, it's grounds. 
you know, boy, he, he loves these big powder puff clouds, uh, you know, and then you don't realize how much of how much, uh, I, I don't want to use the word valuable, maybe close and friendship or, or you don't realize something until they're gone, you know, and, and with Tim uh, and, and not necessarily even, even which is Tim, but with anybody um, of, of the things that you learn from and not only that, but how blessed you were to hunt with that person, you know, and, and me personally, you know, whether, you know, Tim Grounds and goodness, uh, Eli Haydell, you know, he came up and I think one of the last mallards he shot was with me on the river and to have, and, and we can just go on and on down the list. But my point is to have, for me, to be able to even call them a friend is I'm beyond blessed. And when you dig deeper into more than a friendship, when, when they can be mentors of mine that, that I can learn from, and goodness gracious, man, I mean, we can go, we can go on down the list from just different things that you learn from uh, just, just extremely blessed, you know, and, and um, with Higgins TV show, you know, they, after Tim passed, the producer asked me if I wanted to say some comments and on the air and I'm not much of about, that's just not my style really, you know, I, but off the air we were talking and I said, you know, we pulled up in this field that day scouting and, and I just told him, I said, well, I'll put it this way. I said, you see that hilltop grounds would want to do it this way. He'd want to be right there on that hilltop. He'd want to run his decoys down at a finger. He'd want to put some soldiers out on that, that end. He'd want to, he, he's a power caller. Like he wants the black mass right there where the callers are. He wants to put all them decoys in tight. Like that was his signature. Those were his fingerprints. Those were, that was his stamp. And you do that for years and you do that with somebody and you share those experiences. And then when they're gone, you finally realize, holy cow, how much did I learn from that person? You know, and, and not just me, but how many, I mean, and how blessed was I to be able to call him a friend, you know, and, and just extremely beyond blessed. So do I think about it? Absolutely. You know, and, and fortunately for the waterfowl industry, uh, there's a lot of people that never have met Tim that never had the luxury of, of being able to call him a friend, but there are things that they do every day in the duck blind or goose pit that Tim kind of had his fingerprints on. He might not have come up with the concept or technique, or he may have a good chance he did, but even if he didn't, he was instrumental in, in helping modify that, whether it was a product, uh, a technique or anything. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, it's, it's every, I mean, especially all the time in, in the fall and, and the sad part about it. And, and this goes through all humanity is you don't realize what you have until that's gone. And, and it, it makes life slow down and to appreciate, you know, the friends that you do have and to never leave bridges burned to always reach out and just pick the phone call up pick the phone up and say, Hey man, how you doing? They're just thinking about you driving down the road. Hope you and the family are well. And even if it's a voicemail and hanging up, you know, you wish you do that more often when they are living. Um, and I said this, you know, and, and it's a good quote and, and, and I've heard it before. And, and, but you know, with all of us, our, our mortality rates a hundred percent. I would love to say, Hey man, we're going to live forever. 
but we're not. I may not be here tomorrow. You may not be here tomorrow. We don't know. But I can tell you if 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 your time's called tomorrow, well, I'm sure I'm glad I'm doing this podcast today. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I talked to Tim about four days. It was on a Sunday afternoon uh, before I got the call that that the accident happened out on his farm. And I, I'm telling you, Chad, I was sitting in my driveway. And and if you know me, I, you know, I, when I'm on the phone, I, I pace. I'm just a pacer. I walk around and everything. And I bet I walked around my, I bet I walked around my driveway, you know, a hundred times. Um, but I was on the phone with Tim and I'll never forget. I mean, goodness, we talked about politics. We talked about calling contests. Just, it was just life, you know, and I'll never forget hanging the phone up and, and looking at my phone and just kind of gripping it, thinking, man, that was just, Tim's doing good. You know what I mean? Like, man, he's doing good. That was a good call. I, I enjoyed that. Like it was, and you kind of just, it was a split millisecond, but I had that thought. And then the kids run outside and then you just kind of go about your life. But there for a split second, something happened. And, and, and you, obviously you don't know the future, but there was a, there was some sense with me of comfort of, man, Tim's doing good, you know, and, and sometimes you call Tim and just like all of us, oh, he's not feeling good. He's got a sinus infection or, you know, always, always made, made, uh, um, you there, always made fun of, uh, of Tim when, when, uh, you call him, I always said, he's never, uh, you never go in and call Tim and be like, how you doing, Tim? It's like, oh, I feel great. I got up. You know, he's always says, oh boy, I got a bad sinus infection today. You know, it was always, it was always a fun story and we always picked on him. But, uh, um, anyway, you, you never realize what you have until they're gone. And that's, that's just a sad part of life. But yeah, we do miss him dearly. Yeah. We talked about that on one of our first shows together of wish we would have taken more pictures, wish we would have called more, wish we would have stayed in better touch. And it goes right back to that, right? It reverts back to even as good of friends as you were with Tim. And we get that phone call. The first thing you think of is, man, I wish I'd had more of those Sunday conversations like I did that day in the driveway. But what, what, when you talk about learning from guys like Tim grounds and you know, if you're a, a good quarterback, you can't be, Peyton Manning without being a good quarterback. But some people Trust. think, but some people have this, this, this notion in their head that Michael Waddell only can kill a big deer because he gets to hunt only where big deer are, but he might not necessarily be a good archer or a good turkey caller. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like there's this misconception in hunting that you might not be as talented as they make you look on TV. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but until you really get in the blind with somebody, that's when you really see what I call their hunt IQ. You have a very good, very high hunt IQ. You know how to pattern birds. You know how to farm. You know how to get on the river. You know how to access places. You you know how to navigate. You know how to work a boat. You get all that, right? You can go to Canada and figure out how to knock on doors and get on feeds and set up decoy spreads and be successful. What was Tim Ground's hunt IQ? When you say he would have did this and the soldiers were here, did he have a high hunt IQ? Oh, without a – oh, let me tell you something. You know, let me start back years ago, and and, and let me go back before my time, before I even met Tim. You know, Tim ran ran Timberline Goose Club there in Crab Orchard at at Southern Illinois. And at the time, Timberline, which is now – you know, then it turned into the old Crab Orchard Hunting Club – uh, but Timberline was the place. I mean, it was it was the place, and Tim managed it. And the people that guided for Tim, 
uh, and, and I'll drop some names, Adam Rometta, Grady Stevens, Alfie Lanham. Goodness, I can, I can go on down the list, you know, and, and, uh, and I'm leaving guys out. But literally, some of the best goose hunters in the world, I would put them up against anybody. And, and some of those guys that, that, that I was able to, of course, I was a young guy coming up, but I was kind of able to, to hunt with Altie or, or to hunt with Grady in Canada and to hunt with Adam. And like, you learn so much, you know, and, and, and I'm indebted to them and they don't even realize it, but like learn so much. But now that, that I've seen the full thing play out, you know, and they'll tell you that Timberline place, it was some of the best hunters in the world. And they were all kind of under the guidance of Jim in some sense. And they all kicked ideas off of each other and they made it happen back when Southern Illinois was absolutely rocking, you know? So not many people realize that from a, from a nationwide standpoint, that that's kind of where Tim cut his teeth, you know? Uh, and he grew up around really the best goose hunting in the world. And unfortunately here in the last decade or so, it's really gone down. It's just the migrations have changed, but Tim was was an, a very, very – if I could put a signature on him, he's an aggressive hunter, really aggressive, where somebody like uh, Scott Trinan or I think – I would even put Fred Zink in this – they're probably more meticulous, uh, more finesse, you know, um, and, they're, and, and all of them are scholars of the, of the sport, no doubt. But they all have their different styles, you know, and Tim was the aggressive nature. Like he is going to – from a calling standpoint to – decoy like power 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 that's how he hunted you know and everything he did where somebody like scott would maybe or freddie would be just a little more meticulous and and as the oncoming flight they might not give him as much just a little just a little different philosophy now a lot of tim the the reason he had that power philosophy and that thought process is because he could do it his his ability on a call like if he had to go just crazy on a call and super fast and speed to, to sound like a, you know tons of geese he had the capabilities of doing that. Uh, and then again, though, if you really look in his roots, he grew up hunting Southern Illinois. So he's hunting migratory birds where they're getting flight days and he's shooting into those migrators. So that's, you could kind of see where his, where his uh, DNA is kind of, his teeth were cut from, you know, and, and somebody like Scott in, in Rochester, Minnesota, you know, he's more, granted he has those flight days too, but a lot of his geese are have been with him for a long time, so he might have to finesse them a little more where somebody like Tim would. So that, to me, stepping back, looking in, uh, that's kind of where Tim's specialty was and the kind of how he was. But from doesn't matter where you go, whether you're in, in bottoms, flat ground, Canada, Southern Illinois, like he got it. He he's gonna pattern them, put them together like, like no other. I mean, he, he, he was the, the Peyton Manning, just like anybody else in, in, in the thing. And what about calling after the hunt set up was competition um, within competition, calling instructional calling hunting prowess and calling with your hunting IQ is he a good goose caller? Now, I'm not trying to sound like I'm just setting you up to say, well, of course he was because he was Tim Grounds. But when it came to Matt, to being a trailblazer and like everybody accredits you with the spit note, was he a trailblazer of notes and styles? And when you heard him call, did you think pure goose or was he so aggressive with his calling too that he almost took the goosiness out of it and kind of became a wall of sound? Or was Tim quite the opposite to where he laid down goose in every note? Uh, 
Tim laid down goose at every note. Uh, Tim was one of the only guys, you know, back when in my calling contest heydays, uh, and, and before I even go there, the spit note, I got to give credit where credit's due. Alti Lanham, uh, really, my opinion, brought that to fame at, at the World Open, you know, and, and he won the World Open. And and if I believe Grady and Adam Rometta did that a, a good bit, um, and of course, they all hunt together. Then again, it kind of comes around that nucleus of guys that kind of hunted with Tim there at Timberline, you know, uh, but Alti. Alti did that at the World Open. I thought it was one of the coolest things ever, and it's just a regular, like a long, you know, a push moan, what I call, but it was in a short spit format. Um, and then I started do, was doing it that summer in Kansas, and truthfully, a lot of people have kind of given me credit for it, but that's not the truth. I mean, it's it's uh, Alti Lanham is, is where I would I would rather divert attention just because I'm being honest, you know, there and Alti and Grady and Adam and those guys. Um, but as far as during the contest calling days, if you didn't have a call that had, you know, like warning guts and it was very hard to get the right tone, to get that real deep, goosey tone. Um, Tim was the only guy that really that I've ever seen that could pick a stock call up. It doesn't matter what it was and instantly sound like it was warning guts. He just had such a way of delivering air into the call to where he adjusts. I don't think I've ever seen anybody be able to do that with any other type of call. Now, granted, I could pick a call up, regular regular stock call off the shelf, uh, yeah, and make it sound somewhat, but I would want to modify it if I was going to bow blow a contest in it to where I felt like I could have some success, where Tim, he wouldn't even have to modify it. He could just pick it up like, yeah, this is good. And really, that's what he did in calling contests. He would just grab one. Yeah, this sounds good. And he'll just walk up there and, and win with it. You know, it was harder for me to do that. I kind of had to have uh, everything just right for me uh, in my style. But that was just, you know, my preference. But he was a trailblazer. I mean, so many different notes and different things that, I mean, how many different decades did he win? What was it? Four different decades? Maybe five? Like it was crazy of, of, of winning contests. I mean, that's unheard of. 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, I think, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, that that would be correct. Yeah, four decades. I've huh. always I've always thought of like when I would see him on the tailgate at Oregon Waterfowl Festival or see him at the U.S. Open and and how and and when you started talking about modifying a call, I still remember when he came out with the injection molded super mag. Do you remember the the baby blue barrel with the black insert that he came out with? The bruiser. And, yeah, the bruiser yep. and he would engrave his name on him for me and put the geese flying in there with a little saying, but I remember it like it was yesterday when I had him tune my calls and I was expecting him to see, see, you know, get the razors out and the knives and the carving knives and this and that and the sandpaper. And he just took the read out, put another raw read in there, flicked it a couple times, hit it, you know, with his cigarette lips and freaking boom. He's like, there you go. And I'm like, aren't we going to shave the read? And he's like, nah, bub, I ain't shaving nothing. Nah, yeah, that's him. And he would make that. Th- and the thing is, is he could make it run. You know, and even some calls I would pick up, like, man, I just can't make it run for my preference. Goodness, Tim could do it. Like, it, 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 it and I was jealous of that forever, you know, and it's funny because the, uh, when he won the international, um, and, it, and this is, this is a, a funny story on him, but, you know, and, and, and we were on Tim, like, Tim, man, if at the time guys were blowing warning guts, like that, that was the craze, and, and not many really people talked about it. It was kind of a, uh, a secret, I guess, a lot of the guys that we were winning, you know, and, and I, I've made a, I've worked at a taxidermy shop here in town 
and uh, and and when we make our our molds for our heads for all of our ducks, we, you know that two part epoxy that mixture, um, like literally the light bulb went off in me. I was like, here I have a tone board that literally is most my most prized possession. My tone board of my contest goose call. It was worn in so much, like it it was. Uh, I wanted to duplicate it, but I didn't have I didn't have the know how or that. So here I am starting, you know, with with at the taxidermy shop, and we're making these two part epoxy with the heads. I'm like, wait a minute here. Let me see if I can mold my tone board. So, you know, trial and error. And finally, I got it right. Well, I made, uh, let's see, I made, there's four sets out there. Uh, Hunter has a set. Kyle Ranella had a set, placed top five in the world. Uh, uh, Scott Trinan won uh, his live goose with, with that. And then the fourth set I gave to Tim. And we, we, I mean, we had to twist his arm hard for this. But I said, Tim, if you'll blow warning guts, and this is before the triple crown guts came out with him and all that. I said, if you'll blow warning guts, and if you could just come up with a routine, but make it consistent. Basically, the, the whole coaching part of all of this was just to get his mind in the game. You know, if you can get your mind in the game, uh, you'll become almost unbeatable, you know, and, and do the same routine for three rounds in a row. Uh, and goodness gracious, you know, uh, I've, I've fortunate it to come second in a lot of contests and that's my most prized second place finish I've ever had. Um, and, and when Tim won that, you want to talk about like tickle to death just because we all knew he could do it. It's just Tim at that time of his career. Of course, we're in decade number four at that time in his career. He's already had so much to prove. So his mind's not in the game. His heart's not in it. Like necessarily mine was or somebody else. You know, we're just gung-ho and blowing the call all the time. But Tim still, when he put his mind to it and put his heart into it, he could run circles around all of us. And it didn't matter whether I was in my prime or anybody else. When Tim's mind was to it, he could run circles around all of us. And that was the night that he did it. And for me to be second place to that, like, my goodness, it was the best second place I've ever had. Do you do you think that going back to your calling career and all of the success that you had, would you say that what percentage would you put on it? Kelly powers. And I know that you learned from Alti, and I know that you learned from the McCree's the, the McCree's were cutting down old flutes and doing their thing. Like Tim did with the guides best with Gary and Allen doing theirs. Um, you competed against the best of the best from Richie McKnight to, to all of the guys in the zinc crew and everybody that came. I mean, you were in that original crew of the Tim ground guys. And then you kind of transitioned into, you know, you, you had the big Sean's and the field hud and the, in the Scott yep. Trine and who Scott was dirty, dirty on the low end. Uh, um, yeah. what percentage of all of these callers in every generation that you speak of were touched by Tim grounds and not, you know, like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, seven degrees yeah. of Tim grounds in the calling world. Would you say it's 90%, maybe even higher? Oh, it, 90 or higher without a doubt. Uh, and they may not realize it, but just all I would say is, okay, call for me. You know, once you hear him run a call, you're like, okay, that little thing you do right there, you know, Tim, Tim really pioneered that or he pushed that, or what you're doing here is called this, you know, who named it that or who started You know, there's so many different things that you could do um, that he kind of helped. Like, like I said, it's it, it, a quote that I saw, and I, I don't even know who the guy said it. And, and I, don't, I don't get on social media. I was actually on my wife's Facebook page and just seeing after Tim passed and reading the comments and, you know, everybody was really sad and upset. But one comment that I saw, and I wish I come up with it because it's an unbelievable quote that's true to Tim. If the waterfowl industry was an oak tree, Tim Grounds was a trunk. 
And everywhere out a branch goes, his fingerprints were all over it. And right now we're seeing the very tips of the branches, but at the end of the day, no matter how you call, how you hunt, whatever, there's some technique or something that you do that Tim either helped invent or helped perfect or helped modify, whether it's a product, a hunting technique or something. You know, he had his fingerprints all over that. So when you talk about an icon like Tim or, or, or the Eli Haydell or, you know, then there's there's multiple of them that form parts of that trunk. You know, when when they're so influential, I think as waterfowlers, we need to really pay our respects to people before us that did those things. Um, and for me personally, um, to be able to rub elbows and not only that, to learn from and to be in, you know, in the same line. And, and my son went up there with me when, when Jeff Foles put the, the tribute contest for Tim together. And, and my son was asking me about different things and people you hunt with. And it's when I really started, it's like it hit me with like a brick wall of how fortunate have I been to be able to hunt with, those people to be able to help with like even, even people still alive today, like yourself or Fred Zink or, or Scott. I mean, we can go on down the list, but like, goodness gracious, you know, I've always said a, a bad hunter is a, is a hunter that is not willing to think outside the box. If he's stuck in his ways, well, then he's a bad hunter. But if he's willing to step outside the box, if he's willing to, to open up his ears and listen and be aware of what's going on, you, you pick up bits and pieces you know, from everybody. And then if you collectively take all that information and, and put your stamp on it, well then, man, you're just that much more of a well well-rounded hunter or a well-rounded caller. Um, so Tim, for me, was was he was a big part of that trunk uh, of of what I do every day, whether I'm I'm hunting or in contests. With the reach that Tim Grounds had, at whether it was at retail or a calling show or you know, going to watch an instructional video or seeing him on one of his VHS tapes. I mean, Tim was, he has, I still have, I have a memorial I built and it's got my original Tim Grounds cassette tapes of the short read way. And, you know, he was, he was an innovator. Um, What was it like Kelly on the property? What was the shop like? Was it organized chaos? Was it immaculate or is is it something that you would think about? Like just, I mean, like a bomb went off inside of a freaking scientific lab and Tim grounds has got goose call parts laid out everywhere and decoys here. What was it like being in Johnson city and, and seeing the shop? So at at his house in the basement, now this is going back into the late nineties, early two thousands before he's way before he built his new shop where they're at now. But in, in his basement, I mean, there's a, there's a table that's probably 15 feet long and, and guys that have been there before will laugh when they hear this, but literally as big of a table space, it was as a countertop where he tuned calls. I think he only had about a one foot square area of actually that was clear because everything <laughs> else is stacked up in magazines and reads and, and call parts and everything. And, but at the end of the day, like Tim made it work. You know, like if you try to move something around, well, that's just not that, you know, he's going to be lost. Like he made it work. He did everything with his own two hands. So what came into that shop, it went out, his hands touched. And sadly, in today's industry, you don't you don't have that happen a lot, you know, but but Tim, he minimized the overhead that he had. Uh, and he ran a very successful company built off of his own two hands, um, you know, and, and that's where, you know, it, it was it, it was unique. Um, and his stamp was on every product, but being there was, was, I guess you could say organized chaos. Goodness, man, the, the, the memories and stories that are, that are just endless of, I mean, so many times you just laugh of funny things happen and, 
and and more than anything, even with with today's climate, with this with with the virus going on, like I even said to a friend of mine, I, or even Kyle the other day, I was like, I'd give anything to call Tim and hey, what 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 do you think about all this whole coronavirus? Just to hear his take, because I knew it was going to be hilarious, you know, something, and and it would be a turn into an hour phone call that you're just in tears laughing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, every day around with him was was an organized chaos, and it was just it was fun. It was never a dull moment. And and if you're not looking, and he walks up behind you, he'd always take his fingers and pinch you right there in the neck and bring you to your knees, you know, and uh, it always put a smile on your face. And even if if you're in a bad mood. He would, he would cheer you up, you know? So it was always, always a a joy to be around. What kind of guy was he like midday? Um, I knew nightlife Tim and I knew early morning Tim. When you got done hunting with Tim, was it cafe and strategy? Was it nap time? Was it scouting and getting some piece of product or a blind ready for the next day? Was he nonstop during the waterfowl season or was he just kind of chill during midday hours? No, he was nonstop. He was constantly thinking for the next the next day and constantly planning for the future. You know, if the hunt didn't work out today, well, then he's planning for tomorrow or next week. He already knows that that weather, that cold front's coming in this weekend. Hey, guys, we need to get the V-boards out. We need to get the black, you know, all that stuff out. we got to get set up. Let's go ahead and get them down out of the barn. Like, he's constantly planning you know, of those things. So no, it wasn't like, Hey, let's go back and take a nap. No, it was, it was go, 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 go. Uh, and, and, and not only that too, you know, some people, some people that, that really didn't know Tim, you know, on the surface, you see a, you know, a big old burly beard man and all that, that, that you may think, Oh, is he kind of rough around the edges or, you know, when Tim comes up, he would be loud and kind of the life of the party, but he had a heart that was, and I'm, t- I'm telling you this, uh, uh, me being blessed to be around him for the 15, 20 years, uh, he had a heart like no other, you know, and, and I think the people that actually got to know him, like literally he, he would, when they say, give you the shirt off his back, I think that you look that phrase up in any dictionary, if it exists, you know, their Tim's picture would be there. He would, he would do that. He would take care of whatever, you know, even though sometimes, you know, you may, being the life of the party and fun and outgoing and all that. But when you really pulled the tough skin away, there was a heart there that was, was like no other of, of the things that he's done for people, uh, whether it's charitable organizations, all that. And, and, you know, and Hunter, Hunter knows that and got to experience that with him and, and, and Hunter's even said, and I, and I told Hunter, Tim would be very proud of, of, of what Hunter's has done. And, and he would, you know, and um, that's a tall shoes to fill, but I, I, I do, I feel confident with Hunter, you know, being that. And, um, and like I said, growing up, Hunter was like a brother to me and seeing him, you know, from a little bitty kid getting the call, basically born with a call in his mouth and to do what he did on stage, you just, you saw it coming. You knew it was going to come. Once he got older, you knew he was going to become that, that just demon on stage. And, and he was, and just dominated. Is he um, the best of all time? Yes or no? Uh, I, I, I would put him. Yeah. It would be hard to not put him in that list. And that's a tough question for me. Uh, and and I, I say that not directed toward me at all. I just say that to where, when you talk about best of all time, like put somebody like Tim 
if you were to ask Tim that question, there would be people before his time that he would say, boy, I know that guy never called in contests, but if he had his heart to it and you give him two weeks to practice, he'd be tough to beat. And I can say that by about five or six callers today that if you were to give them a week to week to prepare and give them the heart, they'd be tough. And, and really more than that, it, it, that's not fair. It, it lists more of that. But is Hunter the best of all time? Boy, it'd be, it, I mean, it would be tough to put somebody ahead of him, I can tell you that. Because when Hunter's mind is to it, and, and, I, I, and I think Hunter would agree with this, contest calling is so much, I, I always said it's 90% mental, you know, in, in your mind of getting in the right mindset to be prepared for a contest. But when Hunter's mind is to it, dang, he's tough. He's tough. I mean, it's a, it, it's tough. I don't, I wouldn't want to compete against him. That's for sure. I mean, he, he'd, he'd be tough. Who are the guys that I, I had a certain fascination with getting a call from Tim and tell me if you follow me on this, Kelly manufacturers, custom call makers, guys that win contests. You've signed calls for me. I'm looking at two of them right here from you and Kyle Jones. I appreciate you sending them to me. What did it mean though to kids or fellow callers? Uh, Is there another person in this industry? I know you mentioned Eli. There's Phil Robertson, the original duck commander. There's Warren Coco. Are there guys that it would mean as much as it did to get your call tuned or given to you by Tim, knowing that what you just said 10 minutes ago about his two hands doing all the work on that call. Is there anybody that will ever match that legacy in that part of the word? I don't really think so. And I, I don't, you know, 20 years from now, there there may – well, let's be honest. Let's hope there is somebody else that comes by 20 years from now uh, just for those waterfowlers that are that are ahead of us, you know, or that come on after us, I should say. Um, in our time, I would say Butch, you know, Butch Richin back with Rich and Tone on the duck side, no doubt. You know, Butch handed you a call. Let me tell you something. If, if Butch, you know, on his contest stuff and there at the R&T shop, if he handed you a call, it was something, you know. Um, but Tim – but were in, they were in, they were just unique. And, and they had, and, and then again, like they had a heart for kids that goodness gracious, you know, how many, how many call duck calls has Butch given away to kids? Like, I would love to know that number. Like how many, how many a hundred and something dollar acrylic calls has Butch just handed to a kid that privately were probably his best call that he had in his bag here. And the kid comes up, blow it. Hey, I got a good call for you, buddy go use it and have fun. I mean, how many times that happened? And how many times has Tim done that? Tim done that with goose calls. I would love to know that number. Like it's, it's, it would be crazy just because the times I've been around both of them, it was, it was a lot, you know, that you would see that. And that's just where their heart was. That's what they cared about. Um, and, 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 and like I said, I tip my hat, hat to them for doing that. Um, I, I was thinking that I was thinking the same exact thing of, you know, is there anybody else? But now that you bring up Butch, I think that you're dead on right. I think that those two guys probably taught more kids and gave away more calls than anybody. Yeah. And man, the story. And when you get both of them together, oh goodness, you talk about fun. I mean, both of just, just different. I mean, just good times. And, and, you know, the, the days I, you know, we went to the, when, when Sportsman's Warehouse, they used to do the, uh, calling circuit back years. I guess this was in 2003, 2004 there for what, three or four years. And I know Butch hit a lot of those and Tim and myself. And so a lot of us were at the same event, you know, like, you know, every couple of weeks and goodness, it was so much fun to just 
you just do life, you know, when you, you can do life with those people, it just, it, it's just blessed. And this is beyond hunting. We're just going to blowing, blowing, you know, as Wade Walling says, we're blowing bird whistles. You know, it's just at the end of the day, it's, it's just a duck or goose call. It's a bird whistle, but you know, sharing those experiences with those icons, uh, it's just unreal. What you got to tell me more about the process of you, like the initial contact, you've told me the stories, but you became a protege. You were like a son to Tim grounds. And I know that he taught a lot of people, but if you go back and look at the catalogs, if you go back and look at the Tim grounds websites, the videos, the calls that had your name on it, what did you even know what you had at the time with your maturity and mindset now, Kelly powers, did you even have an idea of what that you were being given this or showcased by potentially the greatest of all time in the space? No, no clue. No clue. I'd love to, I'd love to tell you I had it all planned out, but that would be a lie. Um, no clue. And I, I don't, I don't, and, and I don't know if anything to do to make me realize it at the time. Um, but no, I mean, for someone to be as an icon as Tim was, to be as as prevalent in the industry as he was, and for him to just kind of really take me under his wing and 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 just be there for me, you know, in a sense. And even on the contest things, you know, a lot of things that I, I would pick up from different things and learn along the way. It, it wasn't like I was going to Tim's every week and he was saying, "Hey, do this, do that." You know, that necessarily wasn't the case, but. Tim always would listen. He would always want to hear my routine and critique me. And and those critiques, I'd give anything if I had back again, you know, just because, you know, different things that he didn't like about your routine or different, you know, that's to where it meant, meant the most to me, you know. Um, but no, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I mean, I, I met Tim at, it's actually at a contest at Real Foot Lake. And, uh, and this goes back in the mid nineties, probably early nineties. And I bet I was probably 12, 13 years old. And, uh, I ended up buying a guide's best, the goose flute from him. And it had the little cheater bell insert on the end where it was easier to break over. Uh, and I bought that from him. He didn't, he wouldn't remember it, you know, even at the back then, because, uh, I bought that from him and goodness, I went home and drove my parents crazy with it for years. Uh, but then a couple years later, it was a local hardware store, just started selling the half breeds. And I bought me a half breed and, and, and started doing that. And then uh, a gentleman by the name of Glenn Scobie, which, which he made calls here in Newburn, Tennessee, uh, ended up running one of his short recalls. And now this goes in about 95, 96 era. And uh, then in about 97, uh, the summer of 97 was the first contest uh, that I called in. And actually, I, I met a friend of mine, John Pisoni, which is from Southern Illinois. Uh, he hunted with us the year before just through some mutual friends. Well, Pisoni was good friends with Grounds, and they were kind of out of the same, you know, out of the same mode and that same crowd. Well, um, during 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 my investigation into colleges or where I was wanting to go to school, uh, SIU, which was in Carbondale, Illinois, um, I, I just decided to take a college visit which truthfully it was in, in January and in, in the middle of a big goose migration. <laughs> so I got credit to skip school. I actually goose hunted that morning and, and did my full college tour that afternoon. So I did the college tour, but I may have goose hunted in a pit that morning, but, uh, but I met uh, that summer, you know, by meeting Pisoni, I went to Ballard County and called in a goose calling contest and really met Tim officially kind of on a, where, where he would know my name. I would know, you know, uh, where there was an association of mutual friends. Uh, so I met Tim in that summer of 97. Um, and actually I came in 
I think I come in fourth in that contest at Ballard County. And if I'm not mistaken, Alan McCree won that. I know Alan was there, Jeff Foles, Troy Dishner. Uh, you know, either Alan or Troy won that. I, ca- I can't remember. But anyway, um, I, I, I placed way higher than I probably deserved because I just wasn't there yet. Um, so I, I, I did that. And then I kept on with, with contest. Uh, I went to the world in the November of 98 um, after meeting Tim. And at that time, I was blowing my God's best steel flute. Uh, I come in probably the bottom five. Uh, It was as bad as you could imagine without me messing up now. This is not like I I stuck a note or nothing. No, I like legitimately just stunk it up. It was horrible. Um, I was not going to go back. I thought, you know what? I just don't know if this is my cup of tea. And I didn't, there was nothing bitter towards judges or all that. I just, it was more self-reflection of my abilities at the time. Uh, But a guy, um, there was actually a a friend of mine, Brandon Bean was, was blowing uh, short restyle calls then. And then Trent Allman, which I grew up with Trent. Trent was actually calling for night in hell at the time. Uh, and, And Trent was blowing a short read and, and, to me, I could do a lot of the stuff that they were doing on short reads because I could do fast. I could do the speed stuff, but I couldn't cut it on the guy's best. But I kind of had flute training, if that makes sense. So Brandon was presenting air into a short read, almost kind of how you would present air into a flute. Um, and so for me, I kind of it was like a light bulb went off. I was like, man, if he can get that kind of sound, like what if I go back to the drawing board, tune my short read goose call that I feel like I'm pretty accomplished with, um, and do a flute routine into this short recall. So that's kind of how it started. You know, that the world was in November. I went back in around January, February, and literally went back to the drawing board. Um, and and, I, and I, so I had a sheet of paper, and I grew up in loving percussion and drums. So, so like, I've always complained that duck and goose calls and, and notes, there never was a standardization musically like there is in music and sheet music. You know, if, if I've got a guitar solo or a drum solo, I can write it out on paper notes and there's some sort of standardization there that, you know, we could put that sheet music in front of you and then you could play that or you could play it on the piano or whatever. Well, game calls didn't have that. And, and I, I still think that's a missing void. So, but for me, I went back on my sheet of notebook paper and I wrote literally a routine out now, granted, I had to come up with my own terminology because there was no standardization at the time, but I did this all for myself of writing that routine out. Then I started putting it together just segment at a time. I mean, five, 10 seconds at a time of putting this whole thing together. And that's all I would work on is that 10 second segment. And that's it. That's it. You know, and then finally, two weeks out from a contest was game time. It was finally the time to put all of these segments together into one workable routine, you know, before the next contest. So then... Then that was about the that was the summer of '99, uh, and I went to Kansas. I, well, actually, it was in it was in Kansas City, um, and and I went to a contest there and won. And at that time, and I think it was the first contest that I was blowing a short read. And and for me, I always felt like I I could do speed. I could do all the junk. I, I, that was my specialty. So I felt like I kind of blew away a lot of the judges, you know, in that format of, of showing that speed. So I wasn't, I, I went from a couple more contests and, and ended up winning and I was on a row and I wasn't, still wasn't going to go back to East in the world. And Tim somehow got in touch with my dad. And up to this point, my dad's never watched me in a contest. He's never, 
uh, of course, we farm, and he always been busy on the farm. And there's nothing. There was no ill feelings there. He just never has has been to a contest. Well, Tim got in touch with my dad, and of course, I was broken in college, and I wasn't going to spend the money on a flight and airfare. But my dad got in touch with me and said, "Hey, uh, I talked to Tim, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, what's going on?" And he said, "He thinks you need to go to the world that you've been doing good." And and we talked, and of course, Dad knew I've won some contests, and I was like, okay. He said, I'll tell you what, do son. He said, if if you go, I'll pay for your airfare. He said, I'll pay for the pay for the trip if you go, and I'll go with you. And I said, well, you know, Dad, yeah, I would, yeah, I, I'll, I'll do that, you know. And so, literally, the first contest that my dad ever watched me call in was the year I won the world uh, in '99, and and I went, I won that contest by 17 points, uh, and at that time was the largest margin that it was ever won by and I'll never forget, but on the front row, there was well, a good friend of mine, Wes Bradley, and there was my dad and there was Tim grounds. And I'll never forget when they got down to the announcing, you know, second place, which, you know, when they announced the second place winner, that, that reveals who, who won it. I'll never forget looking at Tim and Tim's hands were on my dad's kneecap and like just gripping as hard as he can, you know, fixing to announce the winner. And, and, I'll just never forget that moment to have Tim there and my dad literally front row. And, and it's a deal that, you know, it's a brings tears to my eyes thinking about it, but that goes to where, how blessed was I to have, have that. And, and so to me, awesome. it's a memory. It's a memory and an image that I will never, ever forget. I think it's amazing to, to be able to look back on life and get teary eyed about stuff and what, the other person that was probably teary-eyed because in calling contest, usually the MC announces the total points. And to be separated by 17 points from second to first, like that isn't that does not happen. I think I think maybe Kyle won by three points this last year when I MC'd it, maybe a little, maybe three or four, but 17 is like you're talking about separating yourself by multiple points every round, right? Like that doesn't, yeah. has, has it, has it been beat? Has that record been beat? I, I don't know. And of course they, they've changed the scoring format a little bit on how they've done since then, you know, and different off years. It depends on how the judges do it. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I think one of the years Hunter won was close, if not more, um, I don't know if that would have been 07 or 2010. I, I can't remember. Um, but I, I will say this on that night, and, and as contest callers know, you know, there's three rounds you call in. Well, well, the world at Easton is is Friday night's the preliminary round. Well, then Saturday night is the finals, and it's just the top five. So if if you made finals, then you're in the top five. So here I am backstage, and and I look around, and there's there's five guys standing, or you know, four other guys standing around here besides myself. And, you know, you're kind of sizing them up, even though you're close friends with these guys, you know, and you're all, you know, you, 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 you go out and you hang out. But when it's game time, all right, we're on the same playing field here. Now it's your game face. So you're kind of sizing these guys up. And and I looked over and Brandon Bean, I felt like, okay, if if there's one guy to beat, he's the, he's the guy, you know, and I'll never forget Brandon drew numbers right before me. And if you draw a late number, especially in a final round, like it's good. And for me personally, like if Brandon drew one number, I want to be right after him. And Brandon drew four. And when I pulled out and right behind him and I drew the number five, it was like, this is game on. Like then at that point, it was like, this is, here it is. And it's one of the deals to where I'm going to run through a concrete brick wall 
and and we're going to just burn it down. Like this is it. It's it's the mentality that you have, you know. And and Brandon's a dear friend and and all that, and laugh about it today. But for me, like he was my competition that night, and and he ended up being in second place, you know. And and but for me, he was the one that I thought he's the guy I got to beat. And and I was doing a little note at the end, um, and it, I always call them like little balls. It's just a rah rah rah. And, and you quiver your hand and, and, uh, when you do it, it's one of them deals to where when the, there's enough people in the audience, acoustic wise, it changes the whole dynamic of things. And, and the way Easton stage auditorium is you can face certain ways and really amplify the acoustics. If you knew those little nuances and where to face. Uh, so when it got down to that one particular note, it was the note where I said, all right, this, when I do this, the judges are going to rip their score sheet up and it's over. And if I have all everything lined up and I hit it the right location at the right spot at the right time and don't do it too much, I can really win this contest. And I've always thought, and by having it at the very end, I've always thought, here it is. The judge is fixing to write down a 98 for me. You know, they're fixing to write down. They've already got the nine written. They're fixing to write down the eight and I'm just finishing my routine and then all of a sudden, boom, I hit that last note. Well, then, boom, they changed that eight to a nine. Well, then, psychologically, I've kind of gotten into the judges' heads because they have all given me now a point above probably what I deserve, but it was all psychologically done off of one note. Um, and that's how I all my crazy and twisted mind would always analyze contests on things like that. And um, when I did that note, you just kind of heard the sigh in the crowd and I was like, it's, oh, you know, this is it. It's over. I feel like I think I cannot do any better. You know, I've, I've left it all there. And, and then at that point, of course, by no means do you know the result, but all, one thing I did know is goodness, I couldn't have done any better calling wise. It'd be interesting to know. Well, in Easton, do they tally the scores from the first and second round in the first night with your third round? So, or do they start fresh and you just get scored off of that one round, but you had to have had oh, no. all three it's rounds accumulated. accumulated. It so, was I was a good bit in the lead going into the final round. So it would have taken you literally breaking your call in half probably and falling on your face and, and, and sticking every note to lose this contest potentially. Possibly so, but I live calling, calling contests like Jim Ronquist or Trey Crawford live duck calling contests. It's, you know, if, if, if I'm, if I'm jumping off the cliff, it's to fly, not to fall. And in every single note is calling to win. And if you ever heard Trey Crawford do a calling contest on, on, on the duck call or Jim Ronquist, like they're calling to win every single note. Now that may come to bite them in the butt to where they mess up but they are winning every single note and they're pushing it to the limits. And that's how I did that third round just because I don't know any different. That's how I'm going to do every single note. Uh, and not only in, in calling contest sense, but if you do that in the field, like it sells, you know, you can't be passive and shy when, when you're calling it ducks and geese, you have to be confident with what you're selling them, you know, and if you are, they're going to buy in, you know, and same thing with kind con of calling contest. If you're, 100% confident and you're pushing that through the call, that confidence, it, it translate over to the judge's ears. You know, they're going to buy what you're selling and what you're doing. And, and if you don't have that, it shows weakness and they're going to hear it and you're not going to score as well. What happens now reverting back to your mentor and good friend on the anniversary two year anniversary of Tim's passing, what happens now? You're 17 points 
world champion. You won by 17 points. You're on a Tim Grounds call. Your dad's in the audience in Eastern Maryland with Tim. What does Tim say to you? Does he get teary-eyed? Because Tim was an emotional person. Oh, yeah. Um, what was the atmosphere like? When Did he charge the stage? Did he come up right when they announced you? How does it all work out? Do you remember vividly? Absolutely, yeah. He come up on the stage and um, – he came up on the stage and obviously gave me a big hug. And, and actually I think the, the hug started out with the big old, the, the pinch in the neck and the shoulders like he always does. But, uh, yeah, teary eyed, same deal, you know, and, and my dad being there and, and funny thing, my mother, actually, she didn't, she didn't go. She was back here. And there was our local ducks unlimited chapter banquet was that night. And, uh, funny thing is, is they announced before the banquet started, um, that I was in the top five of the world. You know, and of course, there's 300 people at this banquet. Well, <laughs> I didn't know this, but later they told me later that night that my mom took the phone call right in the middle of the auctioneer going off at the auction and stood up and already won. You know, so it 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 really kind of struck home for me, you know, even back home when I wasn't even here. But uh, but uh, it, just to say that. But yeah, Tim was on stage. Uh, he was tearing up my dad. Uh, and then there were some reporters coming up. And, and this was a incredibly rude thing that I did at the time, but there was, and I can't even think of the, the reporter's name and a writer, but he just come up and was wanting to do a quick interview with me. And there was one person I had to call. And this is before I had cell phones. Now I literally had to, I said, man, sir, I'm sorry to do this, but can you hold tight for like five minutes? I have to go place a phone call to one of my best friends. And I went straight up to the top of the auditorium, turned to the left and there was a pay phone. And I called Brandon Fletcher. And, and Brandon Fletcher is, is one, it's, it's one of those guys you give him two weeks of practice and, and the heart. And I don't want to compete against him. He's one of the best of all time. Um, he never went to Easton, you know, uh, he, all, he won the world open here in, in Southern Illinois, uh, beat me and, and a slew of other callers and won the North American masters. And we can go on down the list, but Brandon was a guy that was one of my best friends, that I would literally call in the middle of the night and say, Hey, what about this idea? What about this note? And he would come back and say, well, what if you presented it this way? And he was so talented and gave me so good advice that when I won the world, like I had to call him, you know, I said, he's the first person I have to call and thank him. And uh, so I made that phone call and then I come back and apologize to the writer. And, and it was still such a rude thing at the time, looking back at it to put him off, but, but he understood, but I was just so caught up on, on calling Brandon. And then, and then, of course, you know how it is with Easton. Everybody, you kind of you get your prize package and all that. Well, everybody went off and they went to the Washington Street Pub downtown there on Washington Street, and uh, they they had a whole table upstairs. And of course, when I I had to stick around at the auditorium and get all my prize package and get all that stuff lined up and shipping prizes back to your house and giving them addresses and the whole deal. But when I got back to the thing, of course, they were all waiting for it. It was about twenty something people. Well. Obviously, you know, he was responsible for the bill that night. Uh, so Tim was like, hey, we got the bill for you. But it was it was enjoyable. That was uh, uh, well worth it. And, and we didn't even um, we had an early flight the next morning at around 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. actually out of, out of Baltimore. And uh, so me and my dad went back to the airport probably at midnight. And there's a little there's a little kid play area. And I'll never forget, but there's a little plastic slide. And that's where my dad slept. He just said, I'll just sleep right here. So we probably got about four or five hours of sleep there at the airport and didn't even go to the hotel room. We were still amped up and then come home. But um, that was the start of it for me uh, of that having that world title, you know, and that's one thing 
that nobody will take away from me. Whether they like me or, or hate me, it doesn't matter. But you, at the end of the day, you say, well, you know what? In 1999, that boy, he won the world and, and, and he deserved it, you know? Um, and so that's one of the things that I tell even future winners that your name is now going to be etched in stone beside Tim Grounds, beside the McCrees, beside, I mean, Sean Stahl. We can go all the way down the list. Hunter Grounds. I mean, your name's going to be etched, Harold Knight. It's going to be right beside those people that are icons in this industry. And you will take that to your grave of forever having your name as listed as that, as that championship winner. Um, and that whole contest and festival still is near and dear to my heart. And again, having Tim to be a big part of that was, was just awesome. Well, I want to do this again and continue with what happens a year later because now you're in the bullpen with people that are you just named. Like you, the people that you're in the bullpen with the following year for the twenty, the two thousand champion of champions, they've all graced that stage yeah. as a world champion. I want to get into that, and I want to get into how much it means to be a world champion, especially in a year to where there will be no world champion. And I think that that's crazy to think that there is not going to be a world goose calling championship this year in Easton, Maryland because of COVID. Um, It was canceled a while back already when they told me, you know, I was going to MC it again and they said, Hey, we're not doing it. And it just puts it into perspective of how special it is to grace that stage in the first place. Just, and then on top of that, to win the worlds and then to win the champion of champions and then to know that Kyle's going for his third this year and he can't defend his title. Right. And that's, that, that's That's right. That's a heavy deal. So Kelly, I appreciate you being here, man. Tim grounds. What, what a character, what a, just what a legacy. I'm so glad that I got to compete against both of you, learn from both of you. And I think it's awesome. And so authentic that you hold them in the regards that you do. And if he was here today, I know that you would probably maybe even take a little bit more time, which I would too. I was looking at pictures of him and I this morning of like, man, I'm so glad I have these pictures of Tim. So any closing words, my man? No, man, that's just, you know, like I said earlier, and being on the two-year anniversary of when Tim passed, you know, mortality rate of of humans is 100%, and there's no getting around it. Our time is going to be called. If you ever got a a burnt bridge or a a friendship that's lost or even a friendship that just becomes distant, pick the phone up, call them, you know, see how they're doing. At, at the end of the day, you don't know when you may not be able to talk to him again. And just don't take those things for granted. Kelly Powers, you're one of a kind, my man. You guys check out Final Flight Outfit, Final Flight Outfitters. I'm choked up a little bit because I'm thinking about. I wish I'd had one more con- conversation, one more phone call, one more hunt with my dad. And when he was gone, it took a huge part of my heart and soul away. And to hear Kelly's words, they ring true with me. So think about that. Burnt bridges. They can't stay that way. Chris Knight sings about that, and it ain't easy being me, that he says, they ought to, they ought to find a bridge they could dedicate to me. I'd probably <laughs> show, up, I'd show up to the ceremony with a can of gasoline. He already knows that he's going to go in and burn this bridge. He says, I'll walk on over to the other side, and there I'd light a match. I'd sit and stare through the smoke and flames, wonder how I'm going to get back. And he talks about, don't burn bridges. And if you do, figure out how to rebuild them. And it's such a huge quality that Kelly Powers and his family have. It's awesome to have you on here, bro. I'm blessed to be your friend. I'm humbled to have you on the show. Um, let's get on another one of these. Talk about Tim some more, and let's talk about what your preparations are. I know you're watching Combines on the farm right now. Let's talk about preparations going into your 60-day season coming up here Thanksgiving 2020. Sound good? 
Sounds good, man. We'll do it. Kelly, I appreciate you, buddy. Tom, hit that button. Please continue to support the sponsors that support our TV shows and all of our podcasts. Thank you all so much for the subscriptions, the ratings, and the reviews. Please tell your friends and family about our podcast and check out our brand new podcast title, Where the Pavement Ends, as well as our one and only original, This Life Ain't for Everybody. I'm Chad Belding. This song is called My Foul Life by the rock band 2AM Logic. Smile now.